Well, once again, we are in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to look at the uh, baptism and temptation of Jesus, as well as the core message that would uh, be preached by him during his ministry. Now, this is a short passage. Uh, the description of the baptism takes just two verses. Uh, the description of the temptation takes uh, uh, baptism three verses, temptation only two verses, and the core message an additional two verses. Uh, this fast-paced jumping from topic to topic is characteristic of the style of Mark's gospel. He'll, he has short, pithy sentences, uh, and he says, and all the time, this happened, and then this happened, then somebody said this. And so it's a very rapidly paced story of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, we're told by Mark that Jesus has come down from Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth, as you know, was Jesus' hometown when he was growing up. Nazareth was not a very distinguished place. And then Mark tells us that Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. Uh, the, the place where John has been baptizing is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. It's out in the wilderness. The roads are not very good leading to this place. But despite its location, the people from Jerusalem and Judea flocked out there to the desert to hear John's thunderous preaching and to be baptized by him for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the people saw John as a prophet. Israel had been without a prophet for nearly 300 years, and so John's coming created a great stir of excitement. Uh, maybe the time had come when God would rescue them from their overlords. Uh, maybe, just maybe, the Messiah was coming. The event that distinguishes John, uh, Jesus' baptism from the baptism of the others was an epiphany, Mark tells us. Mark tells us that the heavens were torn apart, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and a voice spoke from heaven. Let me expand upon this a bit. First, the heavens were torn apart. We don't really know what this was, probably some sort of visual display in the sky. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, the text says, like a dove. Uh, clearly, the word like signals that this is a simile, uh, but we're so far removed from the event, it's very difficult to know what this simile would have meant in the minds of the first readers of this text. Um, in our minds, however, uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus conjures up images of a very real dove. Uh, I think due in part to artists down through the centuries who have pictured that dove alighting uh, on Jesus' shoulder uh, there. And so at Pentecost, um, we even fly paper doves around this sanctuary, as you know, as we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some scholars think, though, that this image refers to the gentle way in which the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. The third event in this baptism is the voice from heaven that declares, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. These are words directed to Jesus, not to the crowds. These are words from God which 
offer an unqualified affirmation of Jesus as he's about uh, to begin his ministry. Very interesting to note that this same declaration is made during the Transfiguration, as Katie noted last week. But at the Transfiguration, these words are directed to the three disciples who had accompanied Jesus. This is my son, the beloved, listen to him, they're commanded. The nature of this commendation is important to note because Jesus' identity is declared and affirmed. He is the beloved son of God. There is some conjecture by scholars as to whether Jesus knew fully who he was prior to this declaration, but no matter what the case might be, at this point there is no doubt. Jesus knows his identity and thus his calling and his destiny. His ministry emerges out of this reality. And on this gloriously high note of an empowering encounter with God, the very next thing that Jesus must do is to go off into the stark, forbidding Judean wilderness for a 40-day fast. I suspect this might not have been Jesus' first choice for a post-baptismal celebration. <laughs> but Jesus' preparation for many ministry involved not just epiphanies and infilling, but also desolation and challenge. Now it's interesting to me that Mark tells us that the same spirit that descended gently uh, on Jesus at the baptism immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is the language. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. No gentleness here. And mind you, the wilderness was formidable. This is not generic wilderness. The term wilderness in the first century referred to a, a particular region in the lower Jordan Valley between the, the Dead Sea and Judea. It was about 10 to 15 miles wide, 60 miles long. It was desolate, desperately hot, filled with jagged limestone precipices, spare vegetation. Not a particularly nice place to be, and yet this is where Jesus was sent for 40 days. Now Mark, in his terse writing style, does not tell us much about Jesus' time in the wilderness. We, we only know from Mark that he was there 40 days, he was tempted by Satan, he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited upon him. There's one odd detail found here, only in Mark's account, that often strikes readers. The fact that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Why would Mark put this detail there? Well, we know that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience, uh, probably in Rome, probably after the persecutions by Nero. Nero, as you remember, tried to burn down Rome so he could get on with his own schemes for rebuilding the whole city. city didn't much like this. Um, uh, Nero's getting a, a lot of heat uh, from uh, what he had done. He needed a scapegoat, and the Christians were chosen for this dubious honor. Uh, he uh, introduced the church uh, to martyrdom. And for the Christians to whom this letter was first written, who were themselves facing wild beasts in the Colosseum, it must have been a comfort to know that Jesus, too, had been with the wild beasts and that the angels had ministered to him and to, and to them. 
In the wilderness, Jesus also meets the devil, Satan. This was apparently a, a key purpose of this 40-day sojourn. This encounter with the devil comes at the end of his fast, when he is famished, Matthew tells us in his account. Not the best possible time to have an encounter with Satan. And Jesus must face three temptations. Now, Mark, in his economy of style, doesn't bother to tell us what these temptations are, but I suspect you remember them. First temptation had to do with food, of course. Jesus is famished from this long fast. From reports out of prisoner of war camps, we know that when you are starving after a while, all you think about is food. Not success or power or money, only food. Turn these stones into bread, Satan says to Jesus. Plenty of stones out there in the wilderness. But of course the temptation is not really about bread. The challenge to turn stone to bread is preceded by the challenge if you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The real issue is Jesus' identity. Now remember, Jesus was declared to be the beloved Son at the baptisms. But now after 40 hard days in the wilderness, can this really be true? What Satan is saying is, if you really want to know that this is true, well, do something that only the Son of God could do. You need bread? You have power to make bread. Or do you have that power? Are you really the Son of God? If so, show me. Show me your power. Nobody can fault you for this. It's a great way to end a fast. Jesus responds with a quotation from Deuteronomy 8, uh, verse 3. A person does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't need to prove anything. Instead, he will abide by that promise that he heard from the very mouth of God at his baptism, that he is indeed the beloved son. Now, the whole question of materialism is lurking in the background of this first temptation. Will Jesus use his powers to satisfy his material needs? But Jesus refuses to use his power for ends not intended. And his firmness during the first temptation sets the pattern for the rest of his ministry. He did no miracle during his ministry that served only him, despite repeated calls for him to do so. Second temptation moves on to new ground. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, the very heart of the city, the center of the faith of Israel. So if Jesus wants to start a new religious movement, well, it's a great place to do it. Satan says, so why don't you throw yourself off the pinnacle? Hey, no harm can come to you. It says so in the Bible. See, if Jesus quotes the Bible at Satan, Satan will quote the Bible back to Jesus, and he quotes from Psalm 91 about angels bearing him up, not letting him even dash his foot against a stone. Lots of stones there. The angels will catch you. Remember, Mark says the angels were there in the temptation during the wilderness waiting on Jesus. Do this, Satan says, and everybody will know that you are indeed the Son of God. And think of the, the spectacle. And if you will pardon a pun, your ministry will be off to a flying start. <laughs> I tried to resist, but the 
temptation was. This temptation is about recognition, honor, having a special place, letting everybody know in a dramatic way who you are. But such a bizarre, self-serving display of, of special power is not God's way. And in fact, in the book of Mark, Jesus goes out of the way to hide his identity to the very end of his life. This is the so-called messianic secret, secret in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus fears that if the people learn that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, they will misunderstand because his coming was preceded by 300 years of intertestamental literature uh, when no prophet was speaking as, and the Jews were ruminating on who would come to save them and that rumination became increasingly bloody. And at the end of that time, they expected the Messiah to be a warrior king who would come and, and lead the Jewish troops into battle against Rome uh, and will uh, put Jerusalem at the center of the world. But of course, Jesus did not come to kill. He came to die. Third temptation brings up the issue of power. The devil now takes Jesus to a a very high mountain and offers him, and I quote, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Now, presumably, the devil could make good on this offer, uh, which is very interesting what it says about the principalities and the powers that underlie the world systems. In other words, Satan is saying to Jesus, you can become king of the world, and think how much good you could do with all that power, and and why bother with the cross? It can be all yours now at this point. Now, I'm afraid these three temptations sound distressingly familiar to us, don't they? Which might be why we need to consider them in this time of Lent, this temptation to materialism. Will we use our calling and mission to serve ourselves and our needs? This temptation to honor? Do we labor so as to be recognized and made out to be special, different from other people? Is our temptation power? Is that what we crave? Or will we be faithful to our call? Well, with the temptation, Jesus' preparation for ministry is completed. And here, Mark defines the nature of Jesus' ministry Uh, in the final two verses in our passage. Let me read verses 14 and 15 to you again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's look at each of these phrases. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. A year has elapsed between the baptism and the temptation, and Jesus has gone back up north to the small province of Galilee, which becomes the center of his early ministry. And he came into Galilee, Mark says, proclaiming the good news, literally the gospel. In the first century, this was a term for really good news, not just ordinary good news, but special good news, like Rome has won a wonderful victory over one of its enemies, or the king has had a son who himself one day will become king. Uh, It it was a special word, oangelion, uh, there. 
And the gospel writers use this to describe the coming of Jesus, which they knew to be an unprecedented event in the course of history. And what is this good news? Well, for one thing, Jesus is the good news. Mark tells us that uh, in the very first verse of his gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the good news, but he also proclaims the good news. He's both messenger and message. And Jesus begins the proclamation of the good news by declaring that time is fulfilled. In Greek, there are two words for time, chronos, chronological time, our usual understanding of that word. The other is kairos, which refers to a special time, a critical event, a major turning point in, in history. And, and Jesus uses this latter word, a special time has come to pass, the event long expected, long desired by the Jewish people is now upon us. The Messiah has entered history. As Jesus next declares, the kingdom of God has come near. God is beginning to establish God's reign, his, God's rule, God's sphere of authority, and we are invited to become part of the kingdom of God. The, the heart of Jesus' proclamation is this invitation to enter into this sphere of God's activity. Come, be part of this new thing that God is doing. And we do this by means of repentance and faith, Jesus tells us in this passage. Now, repentance is not a word we use on a regular basis. It has a slightly archaic uh, sense to it. It conjures up images of robed men holding placards urging us to repent because the world is going to come to an end. But in fact, repentance is quite a straightforward word. It just simply means to change your mind. And here in this context, it speaks about coming to a new understanding of what God is doing and changing one's life in accord with that fact. Repentance and faith. Faith, on the other hand, is a word that we do use a lot, though often in a kind of flip, keep the faith sort of way, whereas the word faith, the noun, uh, the verb believe in the New Testament context, uh, these words have a much more rich heritage and are far more robust than our usual uh, understanding of faith. To believe or to have faith involves knowledge, facts that we've come to hold to be true. Uh, it also involves trust. Our conviction turns into a willingness to put our lives on the line for what we have come to believe. And finally, faith results in action. We live in a different sort of way because of our faith. In this Markan context, because we believe that Jesus is who Mark presents uh, him to us, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, we have opened ourselves in trust to a relationship with Jesus and actively seek to follow him and his way along with this grand company who likewise name the kingdom of God as their true home. That's good news. That's really good news. Let us rest in that. Amen.